There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone, my name is Dev Braga. Now this recording with Aussie Firebug actually went for a very, very long time. So we've actually split our chat into two parts and today's episode is part one. Hope you like it. Hello, Aussie Firebug. Hey, going, Dev? Pleasure to be here, mate. I had a chat with Aussie Firebug a couple of years ago at the height of the pandemic when he was actually in the UK. So it's nice to have him back. And this time I will be doing the interview and he'll be the guest. So thanks for joining us. What we'll do is basics and a few questions, but I really wanted to talk a little bit about how you've enjoyed financial independence because I think you kind of have enjoyed it and you're sort of working part-time, all that sort of stuff. So a lot to cover in this episode. So you ready? Let's do it, mate. Let's get started. Now, if you're new to the channel and want to learn about investing, money, finance, etc., remember the three aims of this episodes and podcast channel, education, entertainment, and empowerment. So, Aussie Firebug, very, very famous in the financial independence world. I think you're also the admin of the Aussie Fire discussion, which I am a part of, and I think a lot of our listeners are. So, you have a fair bit of fan base uh, in the healthcare community, which is great, and One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is your blog has got a very Simpsons theme to it. Uh, You've got a lot of Simpsons emojis, a lot of, you know, uh, images from the Simpsons. What's the backstory behind it? I I, I assume you're a big Simpsons fan. That's a great question, Dev. And I actually think you're the first person to ask me this. Um, I think one other... One other magazine maybe had mentioned it before, but on a podcast, I don't think I've ever spoken about it before. So yeah, Simpsons is my favorite TV show of all time. And I used to read a blog. There was a blog, and I actually looked this up before for this podcast. It's called Living a Fi. And I can't remember if it's a um, boy or girl that runs it and if they're American or, or Canadian. It's an international blog. It's not an Aussie one. But long story short, they have a Doctor Doom, you know, the Marvel Comics Doctor Doom hmm. character. They have this Doctor Doom uh, picture with pretty much all of their blog posts. And I remember... Um, liking that there was like a character in the blog. And I thought, you know, when I, when I started my blog, I'm like, I want sort of a theme in my blog. And I love the Simpsons. I always quote them and um, love the episodes. And I just, that's what I went with. I'm like, it's going to be Simpsons based theme blog sort of. Um, and whenever I can put a Simpsons picture or meme or anything like that, I chuck it in the blog. Fantastic. Look, there's a lot of, I suppose there's some learning experiences from The Simpsons. I I used to watch The Simpsons when I was growing up. I don't watch it um, anymore, but um, I was a a big Simpsons fan. But I suppose there's some sort of financial themes in there. I I, I vividly remember one episode where I think um, Lisa wants a horse or a pony and a Homer has to work extra and and he goes and buys the pony and to upkeep it, he has to do night shifts and day shifts. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely, mate. And do you know yeah. what? I'm so glad that you brought this up because I've rewatched a lot of those episodes on um, Disney Plus and they were so good because not only were they funny and, um, you know, obviously those, they were hilarious and it was just good storytelling, but they actually told some some real life stories and some common stories that a lot of people in, uh, I guess, America and Australia and everyone watching were going through, but they put the, the Simpsons spin on it. I mean, now it's just the storylines are just crazy. I mean, they're, they're still sort of funny, I guess, but the story, the writing of the Simpsons at the start was excellent, especially between seasons about four and eight. And I think that's one of the 
episodes you're referring to when when Homer has to work the two jobs and he's you know he's fallen asleep during the day. Like it's just really good storytelling combined with some human humor and some wit is what made it one of the best TV shows of all time, in my opinion. I agree. I, I sort of lost interest in it um, when it sort of went a bit crazy as well. And and that episode, I guess, resonates with money and finances where essentially he's working and he's trading his time for income and yeah. he just can't afford the pony. And and therefore, he, all he wants to do, like um, I'm a dad and, and all I want to do is make sure that my kids are happy and I want to do the right thing by them and I'll do everything and everything possible to protect them and give them what they want. And th- I think that episode it just resonates um, in a lot it's of people's lives. Yeah, where we're basically trading our time for income and, of course, you know, things may work out, things may not work out and 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 hence, you know, we are all sort of on this journey of life and some of us, like you and I, uh, journey of life with some financial backing on board. Um, the interesting thing about your journey is that I think when you first started your financial independence journey, you were really obsessed with some products, you were really obsessed with some fees. And I think one of your blog posts um, specifically talks about it. And you were really obsessed with cutting expenses. But then you started migrating away from that and started focusing on income where, you know, you can only cut expenses to zero, but you can increase your income, which is a technically an unlimited uh, potential. And I think the exact quote in your blog is, you're a self-confessed tight ass, especially, you know, when you went to London, I think that was a bit of an eye-opener where you got paid a lot more uh, totally. and you sort of went, well, I can actually make a lot more money. So do you think that now you've got both perspectives, if you had to say one or the other, uh, which would be more important for you, increasing income or cutting down expenses? Ideally, we'd do both. But which one do you think is is the most important out of those? Generally speaking, I would say savings is still the most important part, but there is a cutoff point to, to where, where that is true. And then you should probably focus on increasing your income. And you mentioned it there in that question, Dev, that I was very focused on the grinding out. You get to 60% savings rate. I was pretty good getting to there and I was still living a great life. But then that extra couple of percent, I got to 70, 75, it, was, it started to really impact on my life and it was very hard to do. And if I could go back in time, I probably would have told myself that it, there is diminishing returns with savings rate. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not the most important thing because I still think it is the most important thing. It doesn't matter how much you earn. If you're not a good saver or if you can't save money, you're never going to reach financial independence. So savings is definitely, in my opinion, the most important skill to have. But I think a lot of people in the FIRE community focus too much on the savings and investing part. And from what I've seen, and I've met a lot of people that have reached financial independence, it's the ones that can save money and have a high income that really get there a lot quicker. And the funny thing is they're, they're actually, most people that I've met have told me some some really funny stories about losing so much money in investments. Like they're, they're a subpar investor, but they're really good at savings and they're really, they have a job that earns them a lot of money. And they're the people that seems to get there a lot quicker and seems to be able to do it a lot easier. So it's a balance, but I would say, I'd still say savings is the most important, but then diminishing returns after a while and you should probably uh, start focusing on how you can earn more money. Um, obviously, it depends on how how important financial independence is to you as well. Like there's nothing wrong with just, you know, chilling in your job if you only have a uh, 20% savings rate or something and you're comfortable with that, but you're loving life and you're eventually going to reach the goal, you know, in your maybe your 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe. That's cool. Everyone runs their own race. Um, but yeah, I'd say it's not about how much you earn, it's how much you burn. But you do want to start focusing on the income, especially as well, especially if you're earning below the average income in Australia. I think mm. there is a lot of low-hanging fruits for people that are earning. I think the average or the medium is something like 86000 or something like that for the full-time Australian employed worker. So if you're earning under that low-hanging fruit, like you know, everyone's situation is different, but it, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. Like it's, it's very common to hear people job hopping, maybe upskilling, getting a certification, you know, whatever it is after a year, and then maybe looking for another job and getting paid an extra 20000 an extra $30,000. And if you think about how much, how long it would take and how hard it would take for you to amass a portfolio to give you an extra $30,000 a year when you could achieve that in maybe 18 months or a year, you know, so that's, 
that's the message I'd, I'd say with that. That's right. I mean, I agree. I mean, savings rate, if you can perfect that early on in your career, then everything else becomes easier. It's very hard to pull 30, 40% returns annually on investments. So where it's relatively mm. quote unquote easy to save 30% a year from your after tax income. So your returns on your income is, is a lot higher. And could I just add one more point to that? Sorry, Dev. I think a lot of people really get stuck into their savings rate because it's 100% within your control. So I, I, I love the idea of, I think that's where people should start. They're coming in and they're like, all right, um, I don't really have any idea. You know, I always tell people track your expenses because you don't know how much you're spending. You do, so you don't know how much you need to save to generate enough passive income to fund your lifestyle. It, it all begins on finding out how much you actually spend to maintain your lifestyle. That's where it begins. But then I think people get too, and this is myself as well, I, I, I fell uh, prey to this. You get so caught up in, all right, this is all within my control. I'm going to really try hard to reduce my expenses. And maybe earning more money is a bit scarier because I've got to have that, that awkward conversation with my boss. Maybe I've got to do something that I, I'm not comfortable doing. Like if you're in budget and Excel land, you might love doing that. So you just stick doing it. But I think this has been my, my experience anyway. Every time I've been uncomfortable and I put myself in a situation where I'm not sure how things would pan out, like, like the London situation, that's where I've seen the biggest growth and the biggest... Um, gains, not even just financially, just um, within my own, like broadening my own horizons. And I would encourage anyone to really try to put yourself in that uncomfortable position because it will leapfrog you towards financial independence. Uh, that's Well, that's been my experience anyway. Great. Could just, uh, I guess, um, just dwelling on that a little bit and, and tell me if this is out of bounds or not. When you did go overseas to the UK and London and spent, I think, two years there, is that right? That's right. Did you double or triple your income? What was that factor? And if you did increase your income, then did you basically save whatever extra that you make? Because you've already kind of learnt how to live on, I suppose, a lower income in Australia and you've gone there and let's say you doubled it. Then does that mean you saved most of the extra stuff? I mean, barring some travel expenses, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, um, no questions are out of bound, Dev. And I actually think that I've put this these numbers um, on my blog anyway. But Essentially, the day rate that I was getting as a contractor, I didn't work the whole year because we were traveling so much, but the day rate was close to, I think, 2.5 or like 2.7 what I was getting in Australia. But it's comparing apples to oranges. So Mm. the the short story is, yes, I got paid way more in London than than I was getting paid in Australia. It was more than double my wage. Um, But- I suffered, well, I say suffered, but I I enjoyed some lifestyle inflation with that. So we were spending so much more money in London because I viewed London as like me and my wife are traveling the world. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm not here to save money. And we actually, funny enough, did save money because I was earning so much, but that wasn't the goal. So we were going out to restaurants. We were traveling um, every second weekend. Uh, So we did save a little bit, but- our expenses were, were through the roof com- comparatively to what how I was living or how we were living back in Australia the first time around. Okay, right, sure. I guess the, the context there, because uh, most of my listeners are healthcare workers, is that as we progress from junior doctors and junior nurses to senior doctors and senior nurses, et cetera, the income does go up. Um, and my sort of general advice to them is, you know, if you can, you know, save a portion of that as the income goes up and start investing it, then, um, you know, that would be something from a habit perspective would be something good mm-hmm. to do. But I suppose if you're going from Melbourne or Victoria to London, you're your rent, your cup of coffee, mm. everything just sort of skyrockets as well. So everything's in proportion. Do you know what? Don't, don't get me wrong though, Dev. I was still more frugal than 95% of people, even mm. in my spend mode. Do you know? And that comes back to your point about when you have ingrained habits, they're very hard to break. So I was breaking a few of them by going out nearly every week. We'd go out for dinner at some place, cafe, we'd meet friends, something, right? Go to the pub, get beers, whatever. But I was still, you know, I'd pack my lunch. I would, um, I wasn't buying new clothes because I didn't need new clothes. Just like n- normal things that I'd do every day, that was still there. Right. Now, financial independence. So one of the difficulties with what I do as, as a doctor and a lot of healthcare workers is it's pretty hard to convince people to retire fully. And I, and, and I think you're with me on this in the sense that I like the FI component, 
I don't really like the RE component because that gets misconstrued and interpreted as you reach this magical number and all of a sudden you sit by the beach and basically read books or watch YouTube all day. And we all know that's not the whole point of FIRE. What we try to achieve is gives you your time back and you can sort of do what you want to do sort of thing. So have you reached that stage where you're not working full time is my understanding and you just basically work when you want to work and you've got your investments working for you? Is that your sort of lifestyle at the moment? How does your week look? Yeah, that's basically right. So we've reached the point now, sort of the, the, the portfolio is at a point of escape velocity, meaning we don't have to add anything to it and it's going to snowball down that mountain and reach our FI number. We are adding, we are still adding to it, but it's yeah. at the point now where I'm not even, it's not that I hardly care about it, but I, I care so um, much less about it now than I did when I first started. Like it's incomparable, the difference I have in mindset. I'm more about lifestyle design and now moving on to the next phase of my life and what I consider to be the retire early component of fire. And you touched on it that it gets misconstrued. Um, people think, yes, that we want to sit on a beach and sit pina coladas. And I have not met one person in real life that wants to do that. There are a few people online. I'd say like it's 1% of the community, maybe 5% if I'm, if I'm um, giving them the benefit of the doubt that want to do that. But the vast, vast majority of people just want to have more free time in their life. And I think as well, some autonomy over their work because meaningful work is awesome. And that's where I've transitioned now in the last two years. When we got back to Australia, funny enough, I had my old job um, at my old place of, of work come up. It was a position um, and it was in management. Like it wasn't a position that you can get, you know, every year. It was quite, uh, you know, one, once every four to seven years, this might pop up. So it popped up again when I come home. I'm like, oh, it's almost like the devil is tempting me here to go back into a, a full-time job mm. because it's a secure job. It paid well, et cetera, et cetera. But I made the decision to um, not do that, even though we're not fully financially independent yet, just because I wanted to do my own thing and I wanted to focus on something else. And that's something else. I didn't quite know exactly what it was, but it has turned out to be a freelance data consultancy um, company. And that's where I'm putting a lot of my time and effort during the week into. And I get to, I work in data and analytics professionally, and I get to solve really fun data related problems that I was doing um, regardless of work, I'm always tinkering around, um, setting environments up, like playing, playing with data, visualizing it. And I'm doing that professionally now. I'm solving problems. I am still getting paid for that, which is awesome. But it's something that I would do um, anyway. And because it's my own company, I don't have to deal with all the office um, politics and BS that comes with a traditional uh, corporate job. So mm. that's where I'm at. My wife is currently only working four days a week. And she might be dropping to three next year. We're still undecided on that. Um, but we are we are very blessed to be in this position where we've got a decent enough portfolio that's supplementing our income. We, we aren't tapping into it just yet because we're both still working. But I feel like I'm living a fully financially independent life. The portfolio has just got a few ways to go until it catches up to, to full fire. But that's where we're at and I'm absolutely loving it. Fantastic. And, and so you're... Uh I guess your life at the moment is, do you sort of do some work every day or is it just basically whenever you want to work or because it's unstructured, I would have thought. Yeah, sorry, I didn't I didn't directly answer your question. I just realized. Um, so uh, what does a week look like for me? Okay, Monday is one of my favorite days. This is, this will, uh, my wife hates when I say this because she still gets the Sunday night blues a little bit. She's a school teacher. So I wake up Monday and I love Monday because Everyone's at work. So I don't, I mean, the weekends are pretty, pretty busy because where we live, where uh, my, my wife has three siblings and she's, we're both the youngest. So we've got plenty of nieces and nephews. So there's always something on. And usually by Sunday night, I'm pretty exhausted. If it's not, you know, partying with friends, it's going to the basketball with the, the nephews or, you know, something is on every single week. I wake up Monday and I'm like, everyone's at work. So no one is going to be bugging me. I can just sort of um, start my day and really get into the groove. I usually uh, you know, make brekkie for, or make a cuppa for the wife and um, get breakfast. And then usually Monday I will uh, do a bit of work in the uh, consultancy business. Um, I'll 
do a little bit of work uh, for Aussie Firebug, like setting up podcasts, maybe write a few articles or start a few articles or whatever it is. Tuesday, I well, at the start of the year, I was going into a place of work, like I was consulting for another business. So I, I would actually right. go in there on a Tuesday, which was really good. I'm currently working from home full time now, which isn't fantastic. So Tuesday's a bit of bit of the same. Um, to be fair, like most of the week is relatively the same. I, I usually do like a bit of my data work in the morning, a bit of the, my Aussie Firebug stuff in the afternoon. I make dinner every night, so I'm head chef at the household. Oh, um, nice. And it. And yeah, it changes, it changes up a, a little bit. Like I'll go to the gym during the day. That's another thing that I love doing because no one's there. Um, but I'm pretty much home all the time. Weekends, we, we do an adventure or Friday we do an adventure because uh, the wife's got the, the day off. Um, and that's about it. Pretty unstructured. Things can pop up, people pop in. Uh, yeah. And, and essentially your, your data analytics sort of contract work is basically, you know, a company may come up to you and say, yeah, can you have a look at our data? And you do, you do your thing and you just invoice them essentially. Yeah. So I was, it's funny that you mentioned that because I started off consulting, but I've actually switched recently to selling a product that I made and that's been very exciting. And I'm actually, I have sort of a new goal for this decade, uh, the 2020s, and that is to build a small team of uh, five to eight people and to have a bit of a tech startup in my hometown because I was very, very inspired by the data and tech scene in London. And there was a lot of energy and a lot of um, people trying to change things, like legitimately having a lot of passion in their work. And I just didn't feel like I had that same environment when I come back to my um, country town. So uh, that's sort of the goal with, with this. Uh, I've, I've transitioned from like a business to a proper company now, and I'm hoping to build it into something, which is completely not money related at all. It's more of a, just a, a personal goal satisfaction thing that I want to achieve. That's fantastic. And the irony being that by reaching financial independence and what you thought was perhaps working less, you may end up being a little bit more busier than what you were in London. That's the irony. Yeah. I had the exact same conversation with my wife. She's like, are you sure you want to actually incorporate and turn it into a proper company? Um, you're probably going to be really busy next year. And I said, yeah, do you know what? I, I will be. Like, it will, I bet you it will reach a point because I was just cruising. The last two years since we got back from London has been cruise city. It's been really nice. Uh, you know, we bought a house. We moved back from London. We got married. We bought a house. It's been big things that we've been doing from a life point of view. But now that I've the, the dust has settled and I'm thinking – uh, what do I want to do now? Like, I'm not that worried about money anymore. We, we've bought a house. That was a big thing that was on my mind. You know, what do I want to achieve? What makes me happy? I can't just sit around the house all day. And this is the next step. And I really, like, I've got this vision of working in like a cool little co-working space in my country town. There's a few popping up, um, you know, working with some really bright people that are uh, passionate and driven and want to make a difference. And, I want to foster that environment as much as as much as possible, and I'm just really excited to see where it goes. It might fail. Who cares? Um, luckily, in the space that I'm in, you don't have to outlay a lot of capital to get going. So if it mm. fails, you pr- you pretty much just wasted your time. You didn't waste. You know, it's not like you have to buy a lot of uh, inventory and like rent out warehouses and stuff. Um, so it's very exciting, and it gets me out of bed in the morning. And yeah, it's a bit of irony that it's possible next year and the year after. I'll be working, you know, maybe 50-hour weeks or something like that. So we'll see where this goes. On that note, we'll take a quick break. So we'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. 
and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just for a bit of context for my listeners, you're in your early 30s? 33, mate. Ripe old age of 33. Very young, very young. Hmm. Um, So... You started your fire journey focusing primarily on property. That's correct. But now you've shifted your focus a little bit more on the stock market, plus or minus your own business. Um, Now, I always say to people, my Vanguard portfolio doesn't ask me to fix the plumbing. Um, (laughs) I I do have a few investment properties, but I'm moving away from that. It was just a bit of a pain in the ass to sort of manage. Was that the main reason why you're switching over from a relatively passive active investment strategy from property to purely passive? Yeah, pretty much. So I think this is a common theme as well. Like I met a lot of people, I was right into property at the start. And it's funny because I actually had the guy, the second book I ever read about financial independence, and I'm not too sure if you've read it, is Zero to 130 Properties mm. in 3.5 Years by Stephen McKnight. Have you, yeah, yep. have you read that one? I haven't read it, but I've, I've seen it and it's a very famous book. Yes. Yeah. It's very famous. It came out in like 2003. It sold like, I don't know, 200,000 copies or something. Very, very famous um, book. I actually met Steve McKnight the other week or a week and a half ago for the first time. I was actually the second time, but it was the first time I actually had a proper conversation with him because the first time I met him was at a conference of his in Melbourne many, many moons ago when I was just starting out. And he was like my guy. He was the, the guy that I followed, my guru. And I was so in on property back then. Uh, my my parents were property investors. My aunties and uncles were property investors. Everyone that you meet at, at footy, um, footy training at the pub, you know, investing property or somehow relating related to property. So that's all you sort of know growing up. Well, that's all I knew anyway. And I was into that world and we got up to three properties, I think by 2014 or 15. And cut a long story short, uh, essentially as they weren't too much of a headache, but they were more of a headache than shares were, or when I when I eventually discovered shares, it, there was just there's pros and cons with both asset classes, and I just think that the lifestyle that me and my wife were living, and that, that wanted to live, was more suited for shares, and that is what I've seen throughout the years. And back to my original point with uh, like going to the seminars and that, I met people, and I'm still friends with some people that I met nearly ten years ago. Um, and we kept in touch and you know shared ideas with property. And a lot of those people have done the same thing. They've moved out of property and are starting to move into shares. And I really think that it's a natural progression for a lot of people mm. because shares is more active. Um, I, I actually think there is more money to be made in property, to be to be honest, even though, and I've made, on a percentage basis, I've made more money in property than I have and I'll probably ever will be um, with like a passive ETF style share portfolio. But it's just more work. And now I'm at the stage where I want to do meaningful work. I don't want to be managing properties. That really doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. Um, so that's the main reason we shifted. And I've seen a lot of other people shift. But I really want to make it clear because I think there is some rhetoric in the FIRE community that shares is somehow superior to property as an investment class. And I don't think that is true. I just think it's horses for courses. It's what are you as an investor more suited towards and can you bring your skill set into that investment class and make more money that way? And I just don't think, I I think majority of Australians are probably not suited to be property investors, but that's all they sort of know. And that's what they're fed uh, mainstream media that, you know, to be rich, you got to invest in property. But I also on the same token, don't want to dismiss it as um, a bad investment class or anything, because I really think it, it, it I think it has more potential to be honest, than a passive ETF portfolio. It just, you've got to know how to use it. Yeah, look, in all fairness, um, if, if you bought a property in the 90s, you're doing pretty well. Um, so I, I don't blame people thinking that property is the golden ticket to your financial independence. Mm. Um, I know several people, uh, you know, my parents, um, you know, parents of my friends and family, they've just done, well, they haven't really done anything. All they've bought is a few homes and all of a sudden they're all 
quadrupled or quintupled um, mm. and, you know, they've just become multimillionaires as a result. So I don't – I suppose I can see how people can think that property is the way to go because that's what – the media always talk about, you know, the RBA interest goes up, property prices down by 10%, like every other day. Um, but, uh, and the other thing is, of course, the power of leverage, you know. Yes. You know, for odd purposes, go and buy a house. The bank says, yep, no worries. I'll lend you 80, 90%, 100% of the of the home loan, no worries. But if you did the same thing with the stock market, they'll laugh you off, which is which is interesting. And I think this sort of psychology of it is uh, is what we've been fed. I think you're, you're quite right. Now, you had a podcast episode about children uh, and raising children. This is going back, I think, a while. This is pre-pandemic. Um, and I guess I wanted to pick your brain about how do children and how do kids, um, you know, figure in your fire journey. I think I think you have expressed in previous episodes that you, you may wish to have children, may wish to have a family at some point. Um, and I think in one of your episodes with one of your guests, uh, which was caused outrage in the Aussie Fire discussion. Do you remember that? This is a few years I do, ago. I do. Where, where essentially, um, <laughs> for people that haven't listened to that episode, were essentially um, AFB and, and I think it was, I don't know who it was on the other side, were basically talking about cost of raising children. Um, and I think the criticism was, um, you know, two, two guys who didn't have kids at the time. I didn't think um, the other guy had kids. <laughs> Uh, we're talking about raising kids in a very frugalistic way and how you can buy third-hand prams and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and I think you copped a bit of a, I think you copped a bit of backlash online. We um, did. <laughs> so how does children figure in your fire journey? Are you worried that now that, uh, you know, you're, you're potentially doing part-time work, you're doing perfect FI, it all sounds really good now, but kids, kids cost money, right? I mean, they cost a lot of money to raise. I call them wealth killers, but you got to love them. I love my kids, but they eat a lot. They cost a lot. How do you plan to cross that bridge if and when it does happen? Yeah, so <laughs> this is funny that you brought this up. So the, the episode was with Pat and Dave, uh, Dave at Strong Money and Pat the Shuffler. And yes, we we got some criticism for that episode. And I, I don't blame them, to be honest. I mean, it was three guys <laughs> three <laughs> childless guys talking about the cost of raising raising children. Yeah, look, it wasn't wasn't the best episode, I'll be honest. But I was trying to rein it in. I mean, what well, the point that we were trying to get at in the episode, and I guess you can't. It's hard for people to take you seriously unless you've done something. It would be like. Um, you know, trying to someone trying to shoot, tell you how to shoot a basketball that that doesn't know how to shoot a basketball or something like mm. that. So I can understand the outrage, and yes, we I copped it in my own group. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the question with uh, how kids factor in. So yes, we are we are trying for kids. That I, I think I've, that's no secret. We do want kids in the future. Me and my wife definitely, and that will just be an expense that is factored in. You know, like I just don't know how much they're going to cost. And uh, this is the thing. And, and I think this is the, the point we were getting at in the podcast was it is so different. The cost, if you look at people's examples, like the, the, the cost of ra- raising children depends on so many factors and varies so greatly that it's really hard for me to sort of do any future budgeting. I, I think the way we're approaching it is it will be whatever it will be. Like, so w- w- hopefully um, we have kids and obviously they're going to be an expense. We will take that as it comes and adjust accordingly. So obviously the portfolio, the FI number will have to go up um, and we will just take that in stride and uh, put more snow on the snowball and um, see how it goes. I, I guess it's just uh, – I'm very I'm I'm looking forward to tracking that and sharing that with the community because I think like who knows I could be surprised I just think that there maybe is some areas where um you could save money but again I don't have kids so so we will see how it will go for us The biggest factor with having kids is emotion and I think I, I remember when we got pregnant first and uh I've got two young kids and we went to Baby Bunting. Um, baby Bunting is a you know pretty big baby shop in Victoria, and I think I'm not sure whether they have it interstate. And um, you know I'm going to be a first time father, and my wife's going to be a first time mother, and um, we're expecting, we're all excited. And we walked into the shop, and 
you know, at the time I had a reasonably good income. I was saving a lot of money. I was investing already. So it's not as if that I was new to money. But you walk into the shop and they say, oh, we'll, we'll provide you with a consultant for your shopping experience. Now, I mean, I thought that was just normal. <laughs> so I just went, okay, well, give us a consultant. And she she was very nice. She took us every step of the way in terms of what we would need from a neonate up to a 10-year-old. Um, everything from beds and 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 uh, Manchester and and bloody toys and prams, uh, you know, car seats and everything. So, about seven thousand dollars later, at the end of the day, that was we were we were at that we were at the sort of uh, six and a half or seven thousand dollars later. Um, we sort of realised that we'd sort of bought things you probably didn't need, like a nappy disposal system. I mean, do we really need a nappy disposal system? Yes, it's great. You know, do we really need a car seat that lasts for about three months and then you've got to swap it over? Well, you can just buy the one that lasts you for longer. So then we started cutting it down. And um, and it's that emotional factor that a lot of people, you know, don't factor in because, you know, it is your flesh and blood and you want to do the right thing and you want to do the best. And um, I remember when we bought the bed, we actually actually bought a really expensive cot um, which transformed into a double bed eventually. So that bed lasted us uh, several years. So that was actually a pretty good investment and we actually sold it. It was a Buri brand and uh, we actually sold it for a, a significant price, uh, which, you know, didn't almost meet the cost price, but it was a significant benefit for us to do. That was a great investment. Prams, uh, I'm always shocked how expensive Same. prams are. I couldn't are. believe it when people told um, me. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, well, what, what the hell is this? This is like the Mercedes-Benz of prams versus a Rolls-Royce <laughs> yeah. versus a bloody Kia. Uh, you know, do you want three wheels, four wheels? I'm like, oh, shit, you know, there's, there's so much... Um, so much into it. And of course, car seats. So, you know, car seats really important. It's got to be, you know, five-star rating and this and that. Um, so there's a lot of things that that uh, you can easily spend money on. Um, and I think it's the emotional thing that a lot of people don't factor that into account. I mean, we could have easily cut it down by 90% if we wanted to, um, you know, buying secondhand stuff, et cetera. But um, yeah, our kids, um, I don't know, like you, you got to love them. Um, you know, every time I see my children, I'm like, you know what? You're probably going to cost me, you know, five, six million dollars in my net worth, but uh, but I love you. <laughs> and, and do you know what? Do you know what, Dev? I think we're going to fall prey to to this as well. I say prey, but like you know, it's it's just emotions because I know the tactics that that, that a lot of people are going to use. Like you, you want the best for your baby, don't you? You want the best, right? And it's like, yeah. I want the best. Of course, I want the best for my baby, but you pay the extra for the best. And I, I'm human and I just think that And it's so different when it's someone else as well. Like for me personally, I was the king of being as tight as possible for myself. You know, I was never, I, I tried not to be cheap. Like cheap is distinctly different to frugal. Like if you go to a, a wedding and mm. you give them a, 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 some chocolate for their wedding gift, okay, that's cheap. You know, that's not frugal, that's cheap. I was the king of being frugal for myself. If I could make meals for $1.50 and I could make like 20 of them and freeze them all and they wouldn't taste that great and it didn't matter, like I would just do that. But that's just for myself. As soon as you introduce another person into the equation, and that probably starts with a partner, starts with a partner, like you have to yep. you have to give and take to, to have a good relationship, you know. And now if you bring a baby into this world, all right, that changes the game completely again. Even though I haven't gone through it, this is what I've heard and read. So I think that we will most likely crumble to the society pressures of, you know, get, getting the baby the best and everything. It's going to be an interesting journey. I'm looking forward to documenting it and to experiencing it myself. Um, but it, it, it will be interesting and I, I'm, I'm really – I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be an experience, you know, but. It's it's interesting how society is structured uh, for certain things uh, at a much more efficient level. So to give you an example, to go on a holiday as a couple, it's relatively easy. You pay for flights and play for one room and there's a double bed and Bob's yeah. your uncle. Then you go on a holiday with one child um, and you sort of very quickly figure out, mm, okay, well, the hotel rooms are not really structured for three people. They're kind of structured for maybe four people with double beds. So then you have to pay a little bit more to get that hotel room with two double beds for four people. Then you have two children and you go, oh, that's, you know, some hotel rooms are optimised, uh, but now you might need a uh, ensuite, an extra ensuite, might, might need two rooms. Uh, and then you start having three children 
then you go, well, actually, now I have to get two of everything and maybe two rooms or three rooms, even an apartment. Um, then everything sort of escalates uh, because that's just the accommodation. Then you've got to get a taxi. Then all of a sudden you realise, mm, okay, if I have three kids, I need to get a bigger taxi rather than a smaller taxi. If I have four kids, I need to get a van, you know, all that sort of stuff. So everything sort of uh, escalates quite significantly. Now, I'm really looking forward to you documenting that. It's a good thing to leave a little bit of a blueprint for the fire community as well. And um, certainly reflecting on my experience with children, I think I would have done things a lot differently. And I think we did, you know, spend a lot more money than what we probably should have. But um, has it really broken the bank? Probably not. But, uh, you know, that's just being able to be lucky to be able to do I, that. I have a question for, it, for you, Dev. Sorry to cut you off, mate. Just on this topic of children, because this is, my mind is more interested in these sort of topics these days than, you know, the, the financial independence stuff, which is funny. But um, one of the, the things that I'm almost dreading uh, to, to have to go through, it's, it's many years away, but like, so you have two young kids. How do you, have you run into the situation, I'm sure you have, where things start to creep into your children's lives that are outside of your control, um, like their friends getting, um, I'm going to use my nephews as an example here, eight and a half thousand dollar downhill mountain bikes. And now they come to dad and say, mm. my friends uh, uh, have got this awesome giant um, electric mountain bike. You know, I want one too. They're all got it. They're all riding around. All my friends are doing it. You know, get me, get me a mountain bike, dad. And I don't want the POV one mm. because people will tease me. How do you approach that mm. situation? It's a very good question. So exposure to, to children outside of your control is around the 60%, 70% mark, everything from TV mm-hmm. to schooling to outside world exposure. Um, so it's it's becoming harder as my children do grow up. Um, it was a lot easier when they were younger because they kind of didn't realise, you know, having a really expensive bike yeah. or whatever was was a big deal, whatever. So what, I, what I've generally tended to do since they were born is, I know this sounds really bad, but the default answer is no. Um, and when they did ask for something, you know, they, they made sure that they, uh, you know, really needed it and really wanted it. What's happened though, um, I've got an elder daughter who's just entering um, high school, is that that's becoming harder and harder to do. So, you know, we, we've sort of caved in the last sort of couple of years and ended up, you know, getting her the the most expensive iPhone, something max, whatever it is, because, you know, she, she said, I really need it at school because, you know, I can easily transfer it you know, between the computers at school and my phone. Okay, fine. Then obviously the next step is, okay, well, the, the whole school computer systems are Apple products. So, you know, dad, I think I really need a MacBook Pro. So now she's got a MacBook Pro on top of it to go with her iPhone. So it, it, it becomes really it becomes really tricky. And I don't think there's an easy way for it. Now, I don't want to be the guy that's constantly telling my kids they can't have, uh, you know, what they want. But it's got to be within reason. So, and I'm also very, very fortunate because of the way that they've been brought up, they don't actually ask for outlandish things. So, you know, even with, you know, things like smartphones and computers, that's, you kind of need that for schooling where she, a lot of her work that she does is, you know, remote learning was a, was a big thing. So having that MacBook Pro was very useful. And, you know, she does a lot of stuff online. I mean, most kids now are communicating via emails. The teachers are uploading onto Google Drive. There's a lot of that sort of sharing. Uh, so you kind of need tech products. Now, does she need a MacBook Pro? Can it be done with an average Lenovo laptop? Absolutely. So how do you approach that? I think we, we've sort of had a default sort of answer of no during the younger years, but we are finding it that it's more and more difficult to do. Um, and I reflect on my experience growing up, uh, you know, in the 90s, Air Jordans were a thing. You know, I was a, I was an excellent tennis player. So getting a Prince racket was a big thing for me. So now we're at a different level in 2022. Um, it's mainly around tech, but they've been relatively good. Like we, we don't drive a massively flashy car. Some of her school friends, you know, come in a really expensive car. My kids have never actually asked me, hey, why can't we have a really flashy car? They've never actually said that. And I think the reason they haven't said it is because right from the get-go, we've made sure that we've told both of them. I mean, the younger ones, you know, quite, you know, it's only in prep at the moment, but the older one for sure, we've sort of told them, 
nothing should be taken for granted. I'm a first-generation immigrant. Nothing should be taken for granted. Um, and if you really want or need something, it's okay to plan for it, save for it, and buy it. That's completely fine. Um, now, we are very lucky now that, you know, when we do spend money, uh, you know, going holidays, etc., cetera, um, we do spend a lot of money. But uh, they never say, you know, why can't we stay at, at a seven-star hotel? They never say it um, outright because I think they realise that um, they've been brought up in a way that, you know, make sure that you don't take anything around you for granted because, you know, times are tough for everyone and I, I instil it in them. So we don't, we actually don't, um, my expenses, uh, AFB has been relatively the same over the last sort of five to 10 years. The biggest expense for us at the moment is our schooling, uh, which in your uh, fire discussion, there's always someone that gonna, posts I'll, a public say, That's another private. hot topic. That is a hot topic as well. I'm going to be honest and say that we, we do send our kids to private school um, and it does cost seventy seventy five thousand dollars $75,000 and probably will end up costing about $100,000 for both of them by the time they finish per year. But, you know, that's something that we do and we've decided to do that. Do they really need to do it? Probably not. Um, I went to public school and I turned out okay. Um but that, that would be the biggest expense for us. And, and they didn't choose to do that. We, we chose to do that for them. And, uh, and it's sort of so far so good. But, yeah, so th- that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a topic that always – I think recently someone <laughs> posted on your yeah. thing about private versus public and it's heated, a, a, heated that topic. Absolutely, absolutely. Is. And it's interesting to hear you, Dev, say um, that your children don't ask for that much now anyway, which is really awesome to hear because if they're going to such a prestigious school that costs that uh, much money, I'd imagine they're mixing and hanging out with other children that have extreme um, luxury in their life, no doubt. So I think that's just a testament to, to you guys as parents as well, because I definitely, even though I don't have kids, I took some cues from my parents growing up um, I've got some funny stories with, with my dad. You know, people think that oh, I'm a tight ass, you know, should meet my old man. But um, that definitely rubbed off and that those values in, were instilled into me. I just find this whole area though of the marketing machine and getting people to buy things that they don't need very fascinating. It's extremely fascinating and it's sort of, it's almost at the core of the fire movement, that rejection of consumerism and, um buying things that you don't need because it doesn't actually enrich your life. And I think it's really interesting. There's, there's, some, there's a couple of really great books about how humans, we are signaling animals. That That is being in our DNA for hundreds of thousands of years. If you look at uh, how people lived for centuries, you know, we were always wearing necklaces, rings. We wanted to show off our wealth. And there is some like evolutionary traits that come come with that. And it's really interesting that in the 21st century, the marketing machine has really tapped into that part of our brain that hasn't changed that much in the last 200,000 years. And people continue to buy stuff that they don't need to show off wealth that they don't have to impress people that they don't even like just about. And um, it's an issue. And I think part of the fire community is fighting back. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear that, uh, you know, your kids have, have some rejection of that consumerism already at this age. Yeah. And, and it will get big, it will get more and more difficult as they become older. Um, the, the, there are some things that we don't compromise on and it's probably worthwhile uh, me saying this and being open and honest about it. So uh, I'm very lucky to have a very high income and I'm not pretending to be uh, poor by any means. And there's some things we don't compromise on. So, for example, we've decided to spend a lot of money on education. Uh, when we go on holidays, we spend a lot of money. So uh, everything from uh, airfares to hotels to um, experiences. Uh, we live in a really big house and we're very lucky to be able to do that. And when we, when we you know, when we budget for stuff and we and, and we spend for stuff, you know, we we don't borrow any money. So I just spend money that I have. And uh, when we, you know, our cars are not the most expensive cars, uh, but they have a really good safety rating. That's I'm, I'm really concerned about my family's safety. So I wouldn't buy a car that does not have a five star ANCAP safety rating or some sort of safety rating that for European standards or US standards. So I wouldn't buy a car that's that's cheap and has a low safety rating. So those are all non negotiables. But having said that. I don't have a Rolex watch because I don't I don't even have a watch, and um, uh, I have a you know basic iPhone 
that I got um, uh, as part of uh, as part of a continuing medical education. So we're allowed to buy tech products as part of that. So I don't go out of my way to sort of spend exorbitant amounts of money. But there are some non-negotiables in our lives uh, where we want to make sure that you know there are some basics. But but I always tell my family is that we're only here today because uh, you know there are some things that I did you know, when I was in medical school and when I was an intern, when I was a resident, I was really, really stingy. So I always tell my kids, you know, myself and your mum are only here today because of all the things that we did 10 years ago. You can't have it both ways. So they absolutely realised that what we have today is a foundation of what's happened 10 years ago. And I think it's really important that kids understand that because if they don't understand it, they think it's normal and this is not normal. And I think we make it very, very clear uh, to them that, uh, you know, mum and dad have worked very hard and we're very stingy and we've invested all this money 10, 12, 15 years ago so that we can have a life today that, you know, not super privileged or anything, but we're very very comfortable. Um, And I think that's really, really important. Now that's it for part one. Next week, we'll continue part two of this chat where I ask Aussie Firebike more questions around debt, investing and private health insurance. And of course, fire. Catch you next week. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast and Glenn James are authorised representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 